This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. How does this sort of lore of Clara Phillips begin? Alberta's beating and death, as the paper said at the time, it looked like Alberta had been mauled by a tiger. And I think the newspapers picked up on that. They always like to have a catchphrase for any murderer to kind of give it depth and breadth. And I think this is what they did with the term Tiger Woman. Alberta Meadows was lying in the Los Angeles County morgue for almost 24 hours before she was identified, just one of several Jane Doe's. Alberta's father, Fred Tremaine, stared down at her body and wept. He nodded to the coroner. This was his daughter. Alberta loved to laugh, to play piano, and sing for her grandparents in their modest home. She never went to dances, and she rarely socialized. She worked a lot just to pay her bills after Jesse's death. It was so difficult to see her like that now, lying on that table. Fred Germain was miserable and then furious. An assistant wiped the blood from Alberta's face. He draped her body with a white sheet. She was covered with black welts from the hammer. Her dark hair was matted with blood. When she was photographed, you could see her breasts. It was such a humiliating ending for a woman who didn't deserve any of this. Just a few hours earlier, Armour Phillips and his attorney had told the sheriff that Clara murdered Alberta. Armour admitted that he left Alberta's new car in Pomona, and then he bought Clara a ticket for the Sunset Limited train out of Los Angeles to El Paso. The sheriff asked Armour if he had any other details to offer. No, he replied. No need to mention any of his schemes or his scams. Is he exposed as a con man at this point? No, because he was very good at what he did. He covered his tracks really well. And the fact that, again, handsome, well-mannered, well-dressed, he pretty much played it cool. Sheriff William Traeger listened to Armour's story and immediately telegraphed police in Arizona. The copy read, Wanted for a Brutal Murder. The police needed to detain Clara Phillips for questioning. Traeger warned investigators there that Clara was unpredictable and dangerous. Armour wasn't a suspect yet, but he needed to stay in the sheriff's custody until they straightened all this out. Clara Phillips was officially on the run, but she didn't seem to care as the train rumbled along. She rehearsed her new name, Clara McGuire, if anyone asked. She fiddled with a box on her lap. She didn't seem to notice that her real name was on the tag. She could hear the conductor announce the next stop, Tucson, Arizona. Peggy Caffey had not slept a bit on Wednesday night, the night of the murder. She was petrified of Clara. As she left her car that night, Clara told her that she would come back by her apartment the next day to pick up some of her things. Peggy was scared, and she felt immense guilt. But author Claudine Burnett says Peggy was still determined to be quiet for just a little bit longer. Her husband was going for a job interview, and she didn't want him to be upset or nervous if he knew about what had happened. It's very considerate. Yes, and he did get the job. 
On Thursday afternoon, Peggy stormed into the sheriff's office crying and confessed it all. Armour had already told the sheriff about the victim and the killer. Now Traeger would hear from the only witness to the murder. No one knew who the murder victim was until Armour and Peggy came forward with their stories. Thursday was a long day for Peggy Caffey because three things happened very quickly. She spent much of the morning in the office of L.A.'s chief of police detailing what had happened the night before. Then investigators insisted she go with them to the scene. Peggy was soon standing on that same dirt road, surrounded by at least 15 men, all in white shirts and ties and Panama hats. There were local reporters, newspaper photographers, detectives, and sheriff deputies. A shorthand reporter took down her statement, noting each pause and every sigh. The detectives asked Peggy to reenact the murder. This was really painful for her. She imitated the hammer beating to the horror of the male reporters watching. Peggy was constantly on the verge of swooning. A photographer from the L.A. Times snapped a shot of her pointing toward the turnoff. Prosecutors soon typed up a murder indictment for Clara Phillips, who was still happily sitting on a train bound for Texas. After her trip to Montecito Drive, Peggy was immediately questioned in front of a grand jury. She offered up exhaustive details about the case. She explained how she met Clara when they were both chorus girls. She talked about her friend's obsession with armor and her upsetting conversation with her neighbor. She described Clara's sneaky behavior before the murder, how they staked out Alberta's apartment. And through it all, Peggy insisted that she had no idea what Clara had been planning. She questioned their friendship. Maybe Clara had been using her all along. Peggy described every moment of the murder. The grand jury was absolutely horrified. And in less than an hour, they formally charged Clara Phillips with murder. There were no doubts that this was a premeditated and heinous killing. Jurors called it the most ghastly crime they had ever known. In the meantime, Los Angeles police spent five hours searching for the hammerhead. Remember that Armour had thrown it out the window near a creek when he and Clara were driving. City and county investigators were working together to gather evidence, but they never found the hammerhead. By Friday the next day, the LA press latched onto one of the biggest stories that year. A beautiful young widow was found brutally murdered on a nearly deserted road outside of Los Angeles. A glamorous young starlet was accused of beating her to death for sleeping with her husband. An attractive chorus girl witnessed the whole thing. The press in the 1920s tended to reduce the character of women down to how attractive they were. And of course, that still happens. Hundreds of people stormed the undertaker's parlor to get a glimpse of Alberta's battered body. It was so morbid and terribly disrespectful. Armour told the press that his wife was insane, no doubt, and he was heartbroken over the indictment. She was out of her mind over jealousy. Clara Phillips snapped. Well, not quite. This was well-planned, a devious murder and a rage killing wrapped into one horrible mess. Is this someone in her right mind who would do this in front of a, a witness and then leave the witness living? I don't think there's any doubt about her being in her right mind. She's very deliberate about what she does. She's very determined about what she does, and then ultimately very proud of it. 
None of that speaks to not having control of your mental faculties. She did it in a very logical, meaningful, and effective fashion, and that just doesn't speak to insanity. And a string of witnesses confirmed that. She picks up this claw hammer and asks the clerk if he thinks this is heavy enough to kill someone. Is this not premeditated? The conversation in and of itself certainly sets the stage for premeditation. Definitely speaks to the state of mind. That testimony would certainly be offered as evidence to uh, sustain a finding of premeditation. Now, you've got to convince a jury that that's what that conversation was about. That would be difficult. What if she had been joking about the hammer? Her attorney argued that it was all nonsense. It meant nothing, and it proved nothing. The American press relished the tragedy of Alberta Meadows. It was so sordid, a tidy, nearly perfect Hollywood scandal. As I said earlier, Clara Phillips seemed unconcerned about getting caught. Alberta Meadows was dead. Peggy Caffey was sufficiently frightened and was unlikely to say anything. And Armour would never betray Clara. He told her he would soon join her in Texas. Just sitting in the passenger car late Friday night, Clara showed numerous traits on Harris' checklist. There was a failure to accept responsibility for her own actions. There was irresponsibility, a lack of remorse or guilt, And there was even glibness. She had casual conversations with other passengers as the train chugged along. When the engine pulled into the Tucson station, passengers filed off and on. Clara heard her name and poked her head through the curtains of her compartment. She noticed several men in suits walking quickly toward her. They stopped and flashed badges. They asked, are you Clara Phillips? She didn't carry identification, nor did they demand it. She smiled and answered, I'm Clara McGuire. I think you've made a mistake. She gave a false name, which was absolutely ridiculous because everybody knew who she was. But she insisted on this false name. Of course, they didn't believe her. And they looked at her tag on her box, which read Clara Phillips. There were papers inside her suitcase that noted her real name. Not smart. But remember that people with psychopathy are often less intelligent than they seem. And that mistake was indicative of someone who lacked planning, another trait of psychopaths. Clara yawned and said to the men, I'm tired. But she was willing to go back to L.A. with the sheriff when he arrived the next day. The telegraph to the sheriff said, Mrs. Phillips, calm and willing to return with you. The next day, Sheriff Traeger and his wife, who was a deputy sheriff, and two reporters arrived to the jail where Clara had spent the night. She sat in the women's wing under close guard. The sheriff greeted her and wondered if she would cause him any trouble on the trip back. Clara looked at the sheriff and smiled. He asked her name, and she again replied, Clara McGuire. She continued to deny that she was Clara Phillips, That is, until the sheriff pulled out a note. The way they got her to cop to who she was was that there was a telegram or letter ostensibly coming to the jail from Armour Phillips, but was only to be opened, only to be opened by Clara Phillips. So she dropped the pretense of the fictitious name and said, no, I'm Clara, I want to read this. It read, my dear baby, everything is for the best. Come back with the sheriff. You will be treated kindly. Your mother and sister are doing fine. Clara ignored her need for self-preservation because now her goal was to be reunited with Armour. 
someone with psychopathy might actually put themselves in danger because they're so focused on that one goal. Clara seemed unconcerned as she sat in red magazines, but now she was worried that Armour was in trouble and she needed to see him as soon as possible. Clara said, I'll go back to Los Angeles and to my husband. She was very insistent that if something was happening to Armour, she had to protect him as well as herself. And this was a good example of Clara's fixation on her husband. No matter what, she would protect him. On the overnight train back to L.A. late Saturday night, a few things happened. The sheriff immediately began gathering evidence. And Clara's great-nephew, Daniel Phillips, says that Traeger had plenty of evidence. When she killed Alberta, she didn't just kill her. She also took her jewelry and any other negotiable property as well, and they found it on her when they picked her up in Tucson. That's one thing. I didn't kill her, but I had all her jewelry. Yeah, try to figure that one out. The Los Angeles press also found out that she was returning on the train, and they gathered at the station at 1.30 Sunday afternoon. Actually, it wasn't just L.A. press. Media from across the country joined the mob. And someone else was at the train station, too. Peggy Caffey. She said, okay, this is where it ends. You know, I am not going to be dragged into this. She did what I think Armour did finally, which was tell the truth. And she was the one that I think spoke to the um, Alberta's murder. If she hadn't stepped up, who would have? It would have been Clara's word against everybody else. She could have probably had him convinced that Alberta took the hammer and beat herself to death. But she was that charming? Yes. Yes, she was. As Clara stepped off the train in her long dress and stylish brown straw hat, she was welcomed by the media. She grinned more than she had in the past month. She nearly glowed on the arm of Sheriff Traeger. The press yelled out questions. Newspaper people are there to meet the train. It was a crowd scene. It was like a Hollywood celebrity had just come back to town. One of the reporters said something really interesting about it. He said that when she got off the train, she kind of had this sashayed or walk like the chorus girl she'd been. This was her moment. This was her celebrity. This is decades before Andy Warhol and your 15 minutes of fame. I think that's what she was feeling. She's smiling in those photos. This is not a woman brought back with her head hung low and in chains. She's walking and she's smiling. I don't think she thinks she's got a care in the world. The men in three-piece suits put down their cigars and began to lead her to a nearby car. She waved to the crowd. It was almost kind of like all these people are coming to greet me and wish me well and we're behind you, you know, all this kind of stuff. That really did give her the opinion that she was going to beat this. She had notoriety. It's kind of like when you're raising children. Sometimes negative attention is better than no attention at all. And up until then, she had not had anything in her life that had the notoriety that she had in what she had done. And this event really foreshadowed how the rest of Clara's story unfolds. As she walked to the car, Clara saw Peggy Caffey. She smiled and said, Well, Peggy, I'm here. They got me. It was so odd and off-putting, especially to her former friend. While Clara was in the Los Angeles County Jail, she got to see Armour, finally. She smiled at him. 
Jailers noted how she constantly touched his face and his hair and his shoulders as if he were too good to be true. He was the one that turned her in, but he was also the one that got her on the train. And she forgave him that. She never, ever held that against him. The whole relationship was that he realized what he was doing was wrong, so that's why he told on her. But it was okay with her. As long as he had done nothing to change the relationship, you know, she was still married to him. Clara told reporters that he was the only man she had ever loved. She didn't care that he had betrayed her to save himself. The press called it the most appalling crime in the history of Los Angeles. But then they began to churn out stories about Clara's charm and her looks and her possible innocence. Some reporters even criticized Armour for turning her in. He actually took heat in the press for it because they said, what kind of husband would rat his wife out? She's a vicious killer, you know, and he's got some sense of self-preservation, so that's what kind of husband would rat his wife out. Some of the press not only questioned his morals, but also his looks. Claudine Burnett says that a female reporter asked in her column whether Armour Phillips was even worth killing for. Looking at him, she just could not find anything at all appealing about him as a woman and couldn't imagine why a person like Clara, who the press was describing as being, you know, attractive and petite into the latest fashions, could ever be attracted to this man. His great-nephew, Daniel Phillips, disagrees. She was beautiful and dynamic. He wanted that public image. He was good-looking, although I will say the newspapers really said, this sad sack of a man is not worth beating to death a woman. Uh, that, but that, that's, <laughs> that's not fair. That was our great That's son. not fair. He did look handsome. Yes, me. he was very handsome. Late that summer, Peggy Caffey was still nervous, even though Clara seemed to forgive her at the train station. And Dr. Craig Newman says that Peggy had reason to be concerned because she still served a purpose to Clara, though she didn't know it yet. She probably thought of this other person was needed for some parasitic reason. I need this person to do things, but didn't sort of finish the equation and, or didn't care that the other person saw it or wanted a witness or it was a bit of a setup. Yeah. Clara was arrested in July and pleaded not guilty. As she stood there for her mugshot in the Los Angeles County Jail, she smirked. Her trial began three months later on October 20th, 1922. It was yet another sensational trial focused on Hollywood players, even if Clara was just a minor player. She stayed in jail during her trial, which was covered every freaking day by the papers. And all the papers in all the towns, both large and small, across the country and around the world, were picking up the story. Clara's case was just one of several high-profile scandals in the 1920s covered with Hollywood glamour, including a murder that happened eight months earlier. William Desmond Taylor was a director, nice-looking guy who'd been an actor. He was mysteriously murdered. He was shot to death in his apartment. There were a couple of major suspects. One was Mary Miles Minter. She was an actress. She had a crush on him that wouldn't quit. She was a teenager, I think, and he was maybe in his 40s at the time. She had a mad crush on him. Did they have an affair? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. He ended up dead. It's been thought that perhaps Mary's mother was having an affair with him and murdered him. It's not clear. It's, again, one of those really interesting L.A. cases, something I think that could really only happen in L.A., and it is an unsolved homicide to this day. 
In American Sherlock, I write about the 1921 manslaughter trial of silent film icon Fatty Arbuckle. The actor was accused of killing an actress during a raucous party in San Francisco. He was eventually acquitted, and rightly so, because there wasn't enough reliable evidence. Unfortunately, the forensic scientist at the center of my story was the cause of Fatty Arbuckle's problems in court. So a year later, the American press was primed for another sleazy story. And at Clara Phillips' trial, they certainly got one. Newspaper reporters noted that Armour sat behind his wife, constantly smiling at her. He was at her trial every day, and he was trying to bring the best legal counsel to her defense that he possibly could. He was borrowing money. He was still on the grift, so he had to stay involved with that. He was also driving a cab. But Armour's support might have also been misleading to Clara. All of those things he was doing for her, and that gave her comfort that, okay, what I did to Alberta probably fixed it, but the only problem is I'm up on a murder charge. Daniel Phillips says that Armour wasn't as bad a guy as he was depicted in the press. I'm not saying he was an angel, but in this case, I think he was wronged. (laughs) During the trial, the family of Alberta Meadows glared at both Armour and Clara. Alberta had been criticized in the press by Clara's supporters for her supposed affair with her husband. Alberta's father was livid, and he even threatened Armour's life in the courtroom. She had a good, solid family around her. That, that was certainly evident in the trial. They had a strong relationship with her father and her sisters. I just got the impression that she wasn't the kind of person to be a homewrecker. That's absolutely true, according to Alberta's family. In fact, her younger sister, Janora Tremaine, had visited Mrs. McElroy just a month before the murder and left upset. Clara's neighbor whispered that she believed Alberta and Armour were indeed having an affair. Janora was livid. She and her sister had been very close, so Janora knew everything about Alberta. Alberta had told their grandmother that there was nothing improper going on between them. Armour and Alberta were just acquaintances. And actually, Janora said she hated him, which was probably news to Armour. Janora told Mrs. McElroy that Alberta actually felt sorry for Clara because Armour was a philanderer. And Alberta was grateful that her own husband, Jesse, had been faithful. Alberta had cherished their relationship before his death earlier that year. But Mrs. McElroy didn't believe any of it. Janora turned and left. She was sure that the neighborhood busybody would be spreading rumors about her, too, if she stayed there any longer. In October, Clara's attorney settled on a defense of temporary insanity, a rage-killing sparked by extreme jealousy. As Clara sat at the defendant's table... She often seemed to relish the attention, but other times she seemed bored, until her best friend took the stand. The last time Peggy had seen Clara, Clara was smiling at her. Peggy had actually identified her for police at the L.A. County Jail after Clara arrived at the train. Once again, Clara was all smiles. When Peggy Caffey sat on the witness stand, the jury of nine men and three women eyed her. She looked frightened and meek, not at all sure of herself. Peggy began describing the murder, just as she had in July, to the grand jury. But during that testimony, Clara wasn't in the room to hear it. This time felt very different. She said in the trial that she could have gotten out and tried to stop them, but she was too stunned by what was happening. Peggy spent almost six hours on the stand, and during that time, Clara seemed to maintain her composure. 
Reporters watched Clara. She straightened up in her chair and pursed her lips. As Peggy's testimony went on, Clara's breathing got heavier. And when Peggy described their trip to the Five and Dime store, Clara lost it. Clara threatened Peggy during the trial. Clara jumped up, gripped the table, and demanded that Peggy tell the truth. Peggy flinched, and so did much of the jury. The reporters scribbled on their notepads. And when Peggy said what had happened, that was what drove Clara mad. And she came forward and said, Peggy, tell the truth. You were the one that killed her with the hammer. Peggy was taken aback, but she stuck by her story that it had been Clara. But the whole thing drove Clara wild. This was a different side of Clara Phillips, a stunning side that few had seen before. This can happen with psychopaths under pressure, particularly during a trial. There's a moment when they lose their composure, show extreme anger, and then the jury sees the killer's real character behind their glibness. It happened during Ted Bundy's trial when he was sentenced to death, and he screamed, tell the jury they're wrong. And it happened in court with a different murderer, too. John Albert Gardner killed two young women in California in 2009 and 2010. Gardner attempted to assault and kill another woman, but she fought back and broke his nose. When that woman addressed the court, she said she'd like to ask him how his nose is. Gardner became quietly enraged and angrily whispered to his attorney, she didn't hit me, she's a liar. And one more example of a crumbling facade. When a female prosecutor in France trapped serial killer Guy George on the stand in a simple lie, he all but confessed to being a murderer. When he realized what he did, he became enraged on the stand, screaming at her and at the court. His facade as this charming gentleman disappeared. Some psychopaths simply can't hide who they really are, even if it's revealed for just a moment. And that's what the courtroom saw with Claire Phillips in 1922. It was easy to see how she could transform from a cheerful housewife to the Tiger Woman. And Peggy's reaction wasn't meek, which was surprising. She shuddered, then grabbed the arms of the witness chair and shouted back, Clara Phillips bought that hammer. Spectators muttered, and the court officer called for order. It was so difficult to believe that such a pretty, happy woman was capable of murder. But clearly, Clara was. And then another surprise. Clara Phillips asked to testify. She wanted to tell her side of the story. Clara's defense was temporary insanity. It was brought out at the trial that her father was declared mentally unbalanced, that her brother had mental hallucinations, and that there was a history of mental illness in the family. The lawyer also pointed out that Clara had the mentality of a young child. But when Clara took the stand in grand fashion, she stunned just about everyone in the courtroom. She certainly didn't seem like a young child when she sat on the stand Recounting the most traumatic night of her life, she calmly detailed how Peggy Caffey was the killer, not her. Clara was frequently composed, but softly cried occasionally, as if on cue. Female reporters noted her cunning, her ability to manipulate. 
But the men seem to recognize none of that. To this day, murders committed by women are very rare. Clara made eye contact with all of the jury, but especially the nine men. She looked attractive in her dress and well-hatted. But her testimony about her best friend was simply vicious. She said that when Peggy found out about the affair, she defended Clara's honor, her best friend. She blamed Peggy. Why would Peggy have done this, according to Clara? It's a misdirection. A lot of times with folks that are narcissistic, psychopaths, they try to misdirect and reflect what they've done onto somebody else. And I think that's what she was doing. It wasn't me, it was Peggy, and she did all of these things. She was there, she was the witness, and that could have been ultimately what her motive was to have Peggy along, someone to blame. So there was enough crazy there for her to do it. There was enough cunning for her to come up with ways, well, if this happens, I can always blame Peggy. Clara looked at the jury and explained what happened right before Peggy beat Alberta to death. Alberta had denied the affair, but Peggy screamed, Clara, what do you mean to tell me when you're going to let her get away with that? You know good and well that Alberta is lying to you. Clara's story was emotional and extensive. She was very convincing. She said that Alberta finally admitted the affair to both the women, and there was a fight. And Peggy had tried to defend Clara by beating Alberta to death. It was a twisted tale that seemed believable. Peggy had bought the hammer, not her, and it was Peggy who had lured Alberta to the hillside. When Clara confronted Alberta with the affair, the women fought, and when Peggy saw that Alberta was winning, she jumped out of the car with the hammer. Peggy was a good friend. She wanted to protect Clara. So it was Peggy who beat Alberta Meadows to death. Clara said she had no idea that her friend was capable of murder. Her great-nephew Daniel Phillips says this story was typical Clara Phillips. Once they got to Clara's testimony, she got up there and thought, I can beat this. What does she do? She gets up there and puts on a show. And the show is, it wasn't me, it was really Peggy. Peggy was the one that did all of this. Except Peggy Caffey just didn't seem like the kind of woman who would be that assertive. She was so meek. On the stand, Clara watched the jury, especially the men. She cried over all the neighborhood gossip, especially the neighbors' accusations, both against her and Armour for cheating. Clara blotted her face with a handkerchief. She wasn't very smart, but she was cunning. What's the difference? The difference is being very smart, you know, with book learning and stuff like that, that's one thing. But being cunning means you know how to deal with people at the basic level. But remember, Clara was claiming temporary insanity. Her attorney pointed that out. And how he wove this around Peggy was that he said that because of this mental imbalance in the family and her intelligence being so low, that she could not have thought about murdering Alberta. It was Peggy's idea. Clara's family was in the courtroom, sitting behind her the whole time. Clara's mother and her two sisters were her steadfast supporters and co-conspirators in a way. There was numerous conversations between her and her sisters. And I think mom and Henry, her brother, were divorced from this. This wasn't just an insanity plea. It was very specific. It was the three sisters that kind of put their heads together and came up with this hogwash. And the attorney claimed it was psychosis by epilepsy. So back in those days, very little was known of mental illness and of epilepsy. 
So she took full advantage of that, and her family took full advantage of that, trying to get her off. She knew how to play to the newspapers. She started picking out certain newspaper people that she knew that could possibly you know, help her. And you believe that her family, because of this sort of strong bond and it's this codependent, cohesive unit, really sort of banded together to create a narrative that would support, you know, a little bit more of like an insanity plea. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Is that, Which, is that more manipulation? Oh, oh, yeah, because, again, one of the other things that you couldn't get around is that she's pleading insanity. Well, why is she doing that if she didn't do it? Good point. Did Peggy really kill Alberta, or did Clara do it because she had a mental break? Didn't Clara have to choose between the two? Apparently not. During the trial, both of her sisters testified to her past violent behavior, how she would go into a trance and bleed from the mouth and then lash out for no reason. But Clara's great-nephew thinks this was all a ruse. I couldn't find anything in my research on her where she had health problems. She could turn situations to her own advantage. Again, she turned it on, she turned it off, she turned it on. It was a matter of whatever was going to get her either out of a situation or be something that she could take advantage of that would bring her fame, fortune, wealth, whatever. So you don't think she was an epileptic? Absolutely not. And I'll kind of give you some background. My wife is an epileptic, and epileptics do not become violent. Okay, when they have a seizure, the seizure is something that completely destabilizes her. Sometimes they can be bad enough that she falls and probably incapacitated for about five, ten minutes. And then it takes her a while to kind of recover and get back. As I said earlier, doctors say that epileptics are far more likely to hurt themselves than someone else. Blood is thicker than water. I don't really like cliches, but boy, this one really fits this story. The Weaver family met almost constantly with Clara and her attorney. Clara's mother and sisters schemed about the witnesses who were impugning her character. It's remarkable how intimidating three women and a murderess could be. And that's exactly what they wanted. Former investigator Glenn Martin says that some families will do anything to protect each other. They'll come in and tell anything to anybody in order to try and liberate or reduce the impact on their family member who's a defendant in a ostensibly a death penalty criminal case. I think that's what was going on. In the Night Stalker case, Richard Ramirez's father came out to court and testified as an alibi witness. Oh, he couldn't have done this. He was with me in Texas. Well, some very, very talented investigators had, had headed him off at the pass, and they knew for a fact that Dad had taken the witness stand and lied and were able to refute it with a, a news reporter. Clara's trial lasted about a month with almost continuous press coverage. Her sister Ola May made sure that reporters heard Clara's side of the story. She said that Armour and Clara had never been happy. He was a cheater and a liar, If Clara had committed any sin, it was idolizing armor. Clara's mother murmured, My poor little girl, I know how you have suffered, and I know you didn't do it. Even Clara's mongrel dog, Foxy, was miserable. Ola May said she would howl constantly, looking for Clara in the window because she was missed by the family so much. Clara was such a loving person, according to her sister. It was all very dramatic and perhaps convincing. 
After closing arguments, the jury retired to deliberate on November 16, 1922. And the stakes were incredibly high for Clara Phillips because if jurors returned with a verdict of first-degree murder, she could get a death sentence. There was no nonsense going on here in, in the 1920s. Again, another reason for a family member to come in and try and lessen this impact. Because they were scared she might be executed. I would think she was in jeopardy of that. But Daniel Phillips believes that none of that mattered to Clara. She was either oblivious to the risks or she didn't care. As long as Armour stood by her side. It just really didn't impact her as far as she had no empathy. She had no appreciation for really the depth of the problem that she had created. And Glenn Martin says that there was another choice for the jury, a very important one. As an investigator, I would certainly want prosecution and urge prosecution to file a first-degree murder charge. But I'd also want the option of returning a second-degree verdict because you, you don't want to put all your eggs all in one basket and have somebody go free because you think that a jury is so certain they're going to take this statement and this testimony and run with it. So now jurors had to decide who they believed, the meek, dowdy friend Peggy Caffey, who said she was just there by accident. Or would they believe the glamorous, charming, even flirtatious Clara Phillips? Her attorney argued that she wasn't bright enough to plan the murder. It was all Peggy Caffey's idea. Reporters were critical of Peggy, which wasn't really helpful. One article read, Poor little Peggy, just a little chorus girl in a frightful red hat encircled with crown-like feathers. But Clara Phillips presented like a fashion model. Remember that there were nine men on the jury and just three women. The men had the majority. But maybe the men would see through her act. And perhaps she had also swayed some of the female jurors. Maybe they would feel some empathy for a woman who had been betrayed by her own husband. If the jury decided it was first-degree murder, Clara could be hanged, or she could receive life in prison. But if they thought it was second-degree murder, Clara might get away with just a few years. Or she could simply walk away that same day with an acquittal. What is the risk of a jury acquitting her? What is the risk to society, potentially? Oh, acquitting her, a total disaster. This woman was a danger to herself and others. Maybe not so much herself. She was definitely, clearly, demonstrably a danger to others. And if she were acquitted, she could turn violent toward anyone. But there had been only one witness to the murder of Alberta Meadows. And if Clara Phillips walked away from jail, that witness could be in danger. Peggy Caffey wasn't allowed to leave Los Angeles while the jury deliberated in Clara's case. But Peggy was scared, and she was already looking for a way out. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked... Men, I think, found it difficult to believe that a woman was really capable, that she could actually have committed that crime. There had to have been some other explanation. The whole operation had to have someone that could be trusted that was loyal to Clara, and that was Adam May. She was never going to sell her out. Somebody heard, somebody saw, somebody knew, and then they remained mute about it. Not having anybody ratch out is, is equally as interesting. Right or wrong is blood. Blood is thicker than water. All of those things that you hear all the time. In their case, I think that was loyalty gone wrong. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now in hardback and ebooks. More information on the audiobook later. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. 
You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.